Warning. This episode contains violence, racist language, and scenes that some listeners may find distressing. I was actually home with family, hosting family and um, friends. Um, Cooking out, people are swimming, people are all over the place. So family and friends here. It's the weekend of July 4th, 2016. And it's just a regular July 4th weekend. Nice weather, clear skies, around 80 degrees. Larry Washington, you remember him from episode three. He grew up in the projects. He was a dispatcher, then a cop, worked with black kids, and now has retired from the police department two years ago. And life's good. He's got a house with a pool, and he's enjoying the holiday with his family. So is Robert Tarver, a local attorney based in New Jersey. Robert's managed a quick weekend getaway. I was actually at my own July 4th celebration. I had been out with my family, so we have a house down in Georgia, and we were in Georgia just uh, relaxing and enjoying ourselves. Back in East Orange, Mike Morrison is also retired. He's been off the force four years. He's enjoying the weekend too, lazing around, eating good food, and just spending time with his wife. So everyone's taking it easy. Everything's chill as the day turns to dusk. But things are about to take a turn. Mike's phone starts to blow up. My phone just started ringing off the hook. I get in different texts. I remember getting text messages primarily saying, Samino screwed up really bad. Samino, that's Robert Samino, chief of police at Maplewood PD. So I got a phone call indicating that this thing had happened in Maplewood. Maplewood Police Department were in trouble big trouble. And it was all caught on video. They knew the video would get out. And when it did, it would cause outrage. They needed to prepare for the backlash. So who did they call? Like a spy in the middle of the night, in the darkness, I went to the police department and saw the tape. Mike Morrison. I said, this is horrible. I said... Some people are going to lose their job after this investigation is over. And I can tell you, I do a lot of police misconduct work. I do it in a lot of different places. This was shocking. From Curious Cust and Blanchard House, I'm Saren Jones. And this is Black and Blue, Behind the Badge. Episode six, home is where the hate is. Hi, Larry. Hi, I'm well, thank you. It was a cold, dark night in February when we met Larry Washington in Maplewood. Very different to that July 4th weekend in 2016. We'll get there in just a bit. Bear with me. Hi, I'm Saren. Lovely to meet you. Hi, Larry. Vulcan. I'm Charlie. Charlie! To be honest, we didn't know if he was going to show up. Me, my producer Charlie, and our sound engineer Vulcan had arranged to meet him in the parking lot of a swimming pool. We were waiting in our rental, and Larry was late. It was extremely quiet uncomfortably quiet, and 
nearly pitch black. But thankfully, Larry arrived. Work had kept him. Well, thank you so much for coming out here. Absolutely. Wouldn't um, miss this for the world. Oh, great. Well, um, I'm sure Charlie... This was our first time meeting Larry. We'd only been in town for a couple of days, and we were trying to understand the way Maplewood fits around all the towns and cities that surround it. Larry was our guide. And about 30 minutes into our conversation, he had something to show us. You guys have driven around. Have you seen the gates that at one point they call themselves putting on the border of the um, north side of town? The gates? I had no idea what Larry was on about. Would you like to go for a ride? Yes, please. Let's go. Is the car We've driven around, but I don't recollect. Oh, you didn't see gates, I don't, I huh? I think we missed the gates. We okay. might have not noticed We will visit the gates right now. After a few minutes of driving, we took a left onto a street that had been turned into a man-made cul-de-sac. It was quiet, sleepy even. And that's when I saw them. Oh, wow. Literal gates. Yeah, oh yeah. Locks and brick walls. Mm-hmm locking you in. They don't want you here. <laughs> Stay out. There they were. Big, black, padlocked gates, supported by robust brick pillars on either side. The type of gates you're maybe used to seeing in front of private property or in gated communities. On one side was the residential cul-de-sac. On the other side was a main road. And that's when it hit me. It felt like these gates that were facing the east side of town we're guarding Maplewood. I think Mike and I both understood those gates all face the east side of town. What's on the east side of town? City of Newark. What do we know? City of Newark, population, majority African-American people. So it keeps kind of the world out of Maplewood. Yeah, well, it, I give you Maplewood. <laughs> now, these gates are hardly the Berlin Wall. And to be honest, they're not exactly effective. You can still get to the east side of town really easily. But they're symbolic. To Larry, they somehow represent a divide in this place. A massive, intentional divide. It was along this border that Maplewood PD would have one of its darkest nights. A night that would shock the community and challenge its identity for years to come. And by the way, there's a reason why I'm telling you this story in this series. Mike Morrison is the guy at the heart of our story. And he believes that the way you police communities is all about getting out there, walking the streets, knowing your neighbors, basically just being there. And this is especially true when you're dealing with black communities who have every reason to distrust the police. The only way you're going to beat that is by earning people's trust. And that stuff is hard. Now, this story I'm about to tell you is about what happens when none of that happens. So let's go back to that night. The night and the place where Maplewood reached breaking point. It's July 2016. It's the Independence Day fireworks display, an annual event everyone looks forward to. People come from all other communities to watch the Maplewood fireworks. They are from Irvington and Newark and the inner city, 
and make their way up to watch the maple fireworks. Kids and families come from all over to watch the fireworks. It's a big family day out. This is more than just rockets and sparklers. It starts, seriously, 10 o'clock. There's a company that comes in, they do a circus. There's events going on throughout the entire day. They have a parade, a little bit of outing and everything else like that. They've been doing that for a number of years. It's a celebration where individuals, not just from Maplewood, but from other communities come to. Now, I've been to a July 4th celebration before. And sorry if this sounds cliche, but this is what the one I went to was like. And it's what I'm imagining the one in Maplewood was like too. A family-friendly event with calorific food and patriotic music. Kids running around with red, white and blue face paint. Soccer mums waving mini American flags. Dads drinking beer and eating hot dogs. Local politicians, city hall members, the mayor. It's an occasion for everyone to celebrate the land of the free. I loved the one I went to. But the one we're talking about was protected and monitored by Maplewood Police Department. And over the years, Larry says it was normal for the chief of police to be there. I mean, at least for a bit anyway. They'd show their face, then leave. They would, more or less, 12 o'clock in the afternoon. They're pretty much okay. They, they turn to their officer in charge and say, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm out of here for the day. You know, you need anything, reach out to me, whatever the case may be. But the chief at the time was Chief Semino. And Larry says he did things differently. The micromanagement in the guy um, had him just have to be there for whatever reason. So as afternoon turned to evening, Semino was, it seems, still very present. This guy was there at night for whatever reason, and I couldn't begin to tell you. So it's a picture-perfect holiday scene. But there is a bit of tension. And that had been building for quite a while, actually. Local attorney, Robert Tava. It had been a largely peaceful event over the years, but it had been an event that had caused some tension in the town. And the tension was caused because there were out-of-towners that came. Out-of-towners? That's a nice way of putting it. People from Newark, urban area. People from Irvington, uh, urban area. And they were black kids. And so there was a tension with the police department being concerned that there may be trouble. The display had ended. Spirits were high. Another year of American independence had been marked. And now, things were dying down. And after the fireworks is over, normally, it's a lot of people leaving, leaving town. Now, Robert Tarver says there were no obvious signs of what was to come. There was that tension, but nothing you could put your finger on. Nothing concrete. Interestingly, there's nothing that we've been able to find, and there's nothing they've been able to truthfully say happened. In fact, the police reports that they prepared with regard to this incident say and make very clear that things were generally quiet. That's, that's a direct quote, that things were quiet and calm. So how did a situation that was quiet and calm lead to something so brutal? Robert Tava and Mike Morrison think there's no question where responsibility lies. This was a situation that was completely ginned up by the police officer's response here. So on this particular evening, I think the chief of police being out there 
actually added to the chaos. Things were quiet and calm at the fireworks display in Maplewood that evening. Until they weren't. Darkness had fallen and things spiraled out of control. And so on this particular day and at this particular year in 2016, Jason McDougall was attending the celebration. Back then, Jason McDougall was a 16-year-old boy from Maplewood. He was at the fireworks with his friends that day. His family had been living in the town for more than 20 years. Maplewood was his home, and Robert would become his attorney. This is how Robert remembers what happened. When the fireworks display, which they have every year, ended, all the children began to disperse. But what occurred was that the police chief, was Chief Semino, made a determination that he was going to make sure that there would be no infiltration of Irvington youth or Newark youth into Maplewood. And so he had devised a scheme to make sure that youth that didn't live in Maplewood were herded out, so to speak. And Robert says, this is where it all goes south. He says Samina assumed that these black kids who attended the fireworks display weren't from Maplewood. His mentality at that point was, they were all black, they all belong on Irvington. Irvington, the city on the other side of those gates. His assumption was that any black youth there must belong to Irvington, must belong to Newark, must be, they can't be part of this community. Some of these kids are South Orange Maplewood kids all their lives. You know, so to push them into this this town, Irvington, you know, like I said, predominantly black and things happen. Some of those kids, I'm sure, just were absolutely shocked. Robert, Larry and Mike are unanimous. They say Semino insisted. These kids were not Maplewood kids. The chief of police at the time was saying, tell Irvington we're sending them down to them. But let's be very clear. Many of these kids lived in Maplewood. Maplewood was their home. And they were literally herded blocks away from their homes because under his direction, go down here. And, and nobody walks off. Everybody goes and everybody's pushed into Irvington, regardless to how far away they were from home. Some of the police officers were only too eager to follow these orders. They decided to obey. The different communications that you heard, you could tell that pretty much what was happening, that it was chaotic. Yelling and screaming like this over the radio. Send them east. East is me going toward Irvington and Newark. Okay, we're sending them east. Tell Irvington we're sending them down to them. It's almost like, it's almost like they're cattle. The orders couldn't be clearer. Robert Tarver still has the transcripts of what was said over police radio that night. Once they reach the Irvington border and enter Irvington, I want you to maintain our border on Franklin. I want them to maintain our border once they leave our town. And Robert Tarver and Mike Morrison believe these orders came straight from the top, from Chief Semino. His position 
was basically that he was going to keep Maplewood as an insular fortress. He wanted to make sure that forces from Irvington, which were urban black people, and forces from Newark, which were urban black people, stayed out of his very small crucible, that town that we call Maplewood. Samina was the ringleader that night. You're the chief of police. You're giving instructions to the officers to herd people out of town. You're the chief of police. You you walk behind kids uh, with a nice stick in your hand like it's 1975 or something. You know, you are the director of the chaos that evening. This is where Jason McDougall comes back into our story. He's a black kid from Maplewood. He was with his friends and just trying to go home. As he got to a particular street, he wanted to just cross the street and get to his house, which was approximately 250 yards away. Just cross the street and go home. Police officer stopped him, wouldn't let him go. According to court records, Jason said to the officers, I live right here. I just want to go home. An officer responded. No, you're going to have to go down this street toward Irvington. So here you are forcing a 16-year-old into an entirely different community that he doesn't live in. But there's another loaded layer that comes in here. Irvington has a curfew. They have a curfew on youth. And so for him to go into Irvington would subject him to being arrested by the Irvington police because he would have violated the curfew. Jason pushed back verbally. He said, I should be able to go to my house and get to where I need to get to. No such luck. The officer blocked his path. Jason had no choice but to join the rest of the kids who were walking east, further away from home, towards Irvington. Jason starts moving out of town and they are talking back to the officer. And while he's walking, an officer comes up from behind him, strikes him several times, grabs him about the neck, pushes his face down into the car. Without any warning, and in just a matter of seconds, Jason McDougall was under attack. A 16-year-old kid who just wants to get home. Then, as he falls to the ground, he is kicked in the head by this same officer. After he's picked up by another officer, he's taken to another section where he's brutally beaten. Now, Robert uses the word fortunately, advisedly here. Fortunately for us, that incident where he was beaten, kicked in the head, beaten while he was on the ground, punched in the face, was captured on video. This is very clear. It's very obvious. It's there for everyone to see. So, yeah. There was video evidence from that night, but it wasn't released for months. It was purposely withheld from the public. When Robert finally got his hands on it, as a black man, it hit him hard. I remember hearkening back to the videos that I used to see from the 1960s in Selma and in Georgia and in other parts of the Deep South where you had groups of white citizens, you know, uh, basically hurting black people into certain areas. 
that was my first and immediate reaction of seeing that video. But this wasn't the 1960s, and this wasn't the Deep South. It was 2016, and they were just 30 minutes outside of New York City. Then when I saw the violent actions of the police officers, it confirmed that whole thing. There is just such a history here of white action, particularly white police action, toward African Americans that you you cannot help but have that imagery seared in your mind if you're a conscious black man. I'm going to take a minute here. To be completely honest, I didn't really want to watch the footage of what happened that night. I don't mean that out of disrespect, but as a black journalist, watching and reporting on black trauma can be pretty rough at best. But to really understand what happened to Jason, to the best of my professional ability, I knew I had to. It's not hard to find the video online. In the footage, you can see a group of white police officers running towards a body on the ground. Then a handful of those officers punch and kick that body repeatedly, kneeling on it. A couple of black officers briefly observe the beating. One looks hesitant. You can tell by his body language. He tenses up for a split second. But the two quickly move on. I assume they go off to march the other kids out of town. As the officers rise off the body, a young black man is pulled up off the ground, handcuffed, and pulled out of frame. That's when you see another body on the ground, surrounded by police officers. Deja vu. The head of this victim is furthest away from the camera, but the legs and the feet are in shot, shaking and vibrating occasionally. Eventually, this young black man is also pulled up off the ground, handcuffed and pulled out of frame. Now, we don't know which of those bodies was Jason. We don't actually know for sure if either of them was Jason, but Jason was beaten by police that night. Badly beaten, along with three other kids. And that video shows us precisely the sort of violence Maplewood police were capable of. Mike says he was called in like a spy in the middle of the night to watch this video, confidentially. What he saw shocked him. Cops kicking children in the head, pushing them down in the street, you know, got them in the headlock. And what's worse is that some of the officers doing these things, Mike recognized. He knew them. Some of these guys actually worked for me before I left and that I was disappointed in. You know, so I watched the video in its entirety and um, I was not happy with what I saw at all. Robert takes a minute to explain that although he was only 16, Jason was big for his age. A big, tall teenager. And as he reflects on his physical presence, he comes out with an uncomfortable truth. You know, historically, white police officers have always been threatened by larger black men. 
He says it's just part of reality. Being black, being a man, being large. These are attributes, not excuses for violence. And as atrocious as the beatings were, this was more than just a physical attack. Just a heads up, you're about to hear some very strong racist language. Ultimately, it wasn't just that he was beaten. It's that you had police officers who were saying, and, and, and you know, I'm going to use the words. They were telling him, get your nigger ass off the sidewalk. Get your nigger ass over here. It just degenerated into an entirely racist incident. Four kids experienced brutality at the hands of Maplewood police officers that night. And for what? The incredible thing is all of them lived in Maplewood. All of them were just trying to get home to where they live. Various different video footage would eventually emerge showing this incident. Some was captured by police body cameras, some by police stash cameras, and others by individuals and bystanders. Like the video of the beating of Tyree Nichols, or the video that captured the murder of George Floyd, this combination of official and unofficial footage from different sources and different angles paints a damning picture. But that doesn't always make the difference. The brutal beating of Rodney King by LAPD officers back in 1991 is a classic example of that. It was caught on camera, but all four officers involved were acquitted. So we know that body cam and civilian footage are not always enough to prosecute, regardless of how heinous the attack can be. But in this case, the videos were so clear, so vivid, the violence so horrific. Robert felt confident that there was nowhere for these officers to hide. So we have the chief's recordings saying, send them to their town. Send them to Irvington. Don't let them turn the corner. He was insistent on making sure that these children were going to go into an area where he wanted them to go, not to where they belonged. We've talked a lot about the fact that Maplewood is majority white, but has got more diverse over time, and its high school is a real melting pot. So of course, white residents attended the fireworks display. White kids were down there with their friends too. But Robert Tarver says the way groups of black kids and groups of white kids were treated that night couldn't have been more different. Here's the really interesting thing. They were moving kids toward Irvington, all right? Those were the black kids. The white kids were allowed to walk to their destination in South Orange and other areas where white children lived. They were allowed to go to their homes. They were not stopped. No one made an attempt to deny them the right to return to their homes. And these decisions would, for once, have consequences. As I was looking into Jason McDougall's case, I realized something. Something really unsettling. If Jason hadn't survived that incident, there's a chance that maybe the aftermath, the impact of it, could have been very different. If Jason had been even more unlucky that night, if he'd have died, maybe his case would have traveled across the country. Maybe it would have reached me in the UK. 
Maybe we'd have all marched like we did four years later for George Floyd. But none of that happened. His case? Well, nobody very far outside of Maplewood has really heard of it. I mean, have you? And it got me thinking. The people who survive police brutality, what lasting impact does that have on them? What happened to Jason? Jason had plans to go into the military. You know, he, that, was, that was his interest. He had problems after this incident. He had, and when I say problems, I'm talking about uh, this incident took him to a dark place. I believe that he was strongly affected. I believe that he became very insular. Uh, and I believe that, you know, this uh, psychologically affected him. But despite everything Jason went through, he managed to make it out the other side. I believe that he's come out of it, and he's certainly living a productive life somewhere outside of New Jersey. But there were times where, where it was very clear that he couldn't understand why this type of thing would happen. And he couldn't understand how it is that the community that he had lived in all of his life would turn on him like that. All he wanted to do was go home. And that's what scares me. Jason was a kid who just wanted to go home. There's this daunting reality that hits me sometimes around being black and being policed. It's almost like there's no way out. Tyree Nichols got pulled over for a traffic stop on his way home. Trayvon Martin was eating Skittles, making his way home. Brianna Taylor was asleep in her bed at home. They all just wanted to be home. So the reality is, Jason McDougall is what many would call one of the lucky ones, simply because he's alive today. From that incident, their aggressiveness toward community was investigated. That year, two investigations were launched into police misconduct at Maplewood PD from that incident. One was internal and the other was external, led by the Essex County Prosecutor's Office. Mike Morrison. And I believe they came out as the most aggressive police department in Essex County. They had the most incidents of violence from police officers in the county. And so now they had to change or be conscious of the way they police the community after this incident because now relationships are really sensitive. But none of these investigations led to anything. A year later, in April 2017, the prosecutor's office announced that their investigation had found no evidence of police misconduct and that there was insufficient credible evidence to carry out a prosecution. They handed the investigation back to Maplewood PD. Six Maplewood police officers were eventually disciplined for what happened that night. Of the six, only one was suspended. And Samino? He seemed safe. But crucially, up until this point, the footage had still been kept from the public. First and foremost, for the longest time after that July 4th date, people had heard about the incident, but they had not seen video of the incident. So there was a lot of conversation about what happened in the community, but you still had your skeptics 
who were, uh, you know, I'm sure these kids were doing whatever. And then you had the official line from the police, which was that, uh, you know, people were unruly, etc. And there was no video at that point that had been released to basically show what happened. And to Robert, it was vital that this footage made its way out into the world. It had to happen. He felt the video would expose what he saw as mistruths brewing around the events of that night. Because not only could you see what happened, but you could confront the lies that were being told about what happened. And in many cases, that is more powerful than anything to show individuals as not having been truthful about what actually happened. The township deliberately, they were in possession of of, of body cam video, but they deliberately held on to that video, deliberately prevented that video from being released. In August 2017, the video was anonymously leaked to the residents of Maplewood, and the spotlight fell on the man in charge, Chief Samino. It caused outrage. Residents wanted him gone. But it became very clear very early on that this was an indefensible case for the township of Maplewood. There was not a position that they could take that would support any type of defense here. Robert feels that Maplewood Township Committee had to act. Well, he came under intense scrutiny. It became very clear the things that he said, became very clear the things that he did. Those statements and those actions that I described were on display for the entire community to see. It became a unifying moment for the people of Maplewood. You had black residents, you had white residents. More importantly, you had black children and white children bonding together, saying that this person has to go. At some of the council meetings, you would see white children holding signs indicating that Semino needed to go. There was a universal recognition that he had gone too far. The township committee unanimously voted on Semino. The result was no confidence. And that month, the committee reached a settlement with him. Chief Semino was asked to resign, but that didn't happen. Instead, he was placed on paid leave until he could retire the following year. He got a payout of over a quarter of a million dollars. And when he did retire at the beginning of 2018, he was also given letters by the township, letters stating that he had served with dedication and professionalism for 36 years and that he had no formal disciplinary action sustained against him during his time as chief. In exchange, he agreed never to sue. But many Maplewood residents felt this was a weak response from the town. And Jason's attorney, Robert Tarver, wasn't satisfied. For him, the events of that night pointed to a worrying belief. The statements that he made, send them to Irvington. Take them out of our town. And when you say our town, what are you really saying? He's expressing ownership that those children can't possibly be ours because we, they, they don't look like us or they don't behave like us or whatever. They are in our town. And our is a, is a word that describes possession and ownership. 
This is our town and those outsiders should be repelled. And the only way you can tell that they were outsiders is because they were black. But to Robert Tava, this isn't just about one individual. It's cultural. It's institutional. And the interesting thing is liability doesn't just exist for an officer who kicks a child in the head. Liability exists for an officer who watches someone kick a child in the head and does absolutely nothing. So it wasn't a situation where we just had that one officer on the hook. It's a situation where we had that department on the hook, as well as those officers who were out there and just let him brutalize Jason McDougal. So Jason and his family sued Maplewood police for racial discrimination and use of excessive force. Now, settlement conditions forbid his lawyer, Robert Tava, from going into any details of the case, but it didn't take long for it to be resolved. So we ended up in federal court in New Jersey, and uh, we reached a resolution that Mr. McDougal was comfortable with. Mr. McDougal wanted to move on with his life, and we gave him the ability to be able to do that. After the incident, Maplewood Township paid for a review of the policing that night. The report contradicts Robert Tarver's claim that things were quiet and calm. It says everything started because of a fight between two women. It confirmed that the youth in Maplewood were made to walk 1.3 miles to the east border of the town. It concluded that the department did not comply with a core element of appropriate crowd control. The report speaks of internal distrust and fear of discipline within the police department. And it says that many officers working that night actually disagreed with Samino's approach. The report also confirmed that the Maplewood Police Department had strained relationships with minority youth. Internal and external complaints of racial profiling were made towards Maplewood PD officers on the night of July 5th, but they were never upheld. So even though to many people this looked like a racist incident and felt like a racist incident, the official conclusion was that it was in fact not a racist incident. But guess what was included as a recommendation for the department? Improve relationships with the community, especially youth. Mike says he was called into the police department that weekend like a spy in the middle of the night to watch what could be described as Maplewood's biggest case of police brutality in the town's modern history. His perspective and expertise was wanted. Actually, it was needed by a department who knew they had well and truly messed up. But despite all of that, Mike Morrison found himself between the black and the blue once again. I believe that incident does not represent Maplewood Police Department. It does not represent Maplewood Police Department as a whole. And that's why I was very anxious to help them, you know, to change their image or their perception. I've tried to talk to former Chief Semino about what happened that night. He didn't respond to my requests. Maplewood PD also doesn't want to comment further. They're under new leadership now, and it seems a lot of work is being done to improve relationships with police since that night. Work Mike is rightly proud of. You know, at the end of the day, I'm going to get everybody in the town to like the police department. I know that's not going to happen, but I knew that horrible incident 
does not represent Maple Police. And so that was that's what I was passionate about. I told you at the start of the show that I've wanted to do a story about black police officers for years. That the voice of black officers is a voice I'd never heard before. But it was one that I wanted to hear. Well, actually, no, it was one I wanted to understand. As a journalist, I've been speaking to Mike for over a year now. But the truth is, the more I learn about policing and race relations in America, the more the contradictions seriously trouble me. I genuinely believe that Mike is a good guy with great intentions. He believes he can make a change from the inside out. But what does it mean to support a system in which racism seems so systemic, so entrenched? And how far does the system have to go? How bad does it really have to be before you stop believing? Next time on Black and Blue. We go back to Mike Sapp from episode one. He's stopped believing, and now he's taking on the system. Once and for all. The nonsense that went on, on duty and off duty, alcohol abuse, people hooked on oxycodone, sex on duty, in uniform, in a patrol car. You've been listening to Black and Blue, a Blanchard House production for Curious Cast. Black and Blue is hosted, written, and produced by me, Saren Jones. Script consultant, Soraya Shockley. The sound recordist is Vulcan Kizeltuk. Original music is by Daniel Lloyd Evans, Louis Nankmanel, and Toby Matamong. Sound design and mix engineering is by Toby Matamong. Voice coaching by Vicky Merrick. The managing producer is Amika Shortino-Nolan. The creative director of Blanchard House is Rosie Pye. The head of content at Blanchard House is Lawrence Grizel. The executive producers are Charlie Bell and Lawrence Grizel. For Curious Cast, the executive producers are Dila Velasquez and Chris Duncombe. 